Today we're on Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the central chapter of the book of Leviticus. Uh, many would argue that it's the central chapter of the entirety of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, another way of saying it. Um, it's probably a familiar passage for many of you, which always makes them a little bit more difficult to preach. Um, as I was preparing this week, I think I had three potential sermons that I was going to write. And even the, up to this morning, I said to Gina, I was like, so which, <laughs> which sermon do you think I should do? <laughs> because I really debated whether you go, we could do a real deep dive and take like three weeks to go through it or not. Um, and so I decided to do a little more of a classic approach. And so for those of you who are familiar with Leviticus 16, I just hope that this is refreshing to your soul. If you're not used, uh, if you've never heard of the Day of Atonement and the meaning behind the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 understanding explanation, um, I pray that it would be enlightening to you, and I pray that it would open your eyes to some of the beauty that we see of the gospel as well as the scriptures. So as we go into this time this morning, you we all know what it's like when you have something that's constantly looming over you, right? That idea where there's something weighing on you in the back of your mind all the time. Now, in this room, we have multiple people who are cancer survivors, and their cancer is in remission. And there's always that gnawing concept, that gnawing thought in the back of your mind that this could return. This could come back. I could go back for my quarterly blood work, and the oncologist could say, your cancer looks like it's, it's come back. And so there's this idea where even though there's been victory, this is looming in the back of your mind. For others in this room, that you are crushed in debt, you're crushed in credit card debt, that you have no idea how you'll ever get out, and you just kind of go on with your life paying the, the minimum thing on the credit card because you realize uh, there's no way out of this hole. And so this debt is constantly in the back of your mind. For some, it's chronic sickness. For others, it is a wayward child. For other people, it is some kind of phobia beyond remedy. You see, we all know what it's like to have something looming over you where you feel like it's always there as that little nagging voice in the corner of your mind. Well, for Israel, the constant looming over them was their sin. And these are things that we take for granted as being kind of born and raised post-Christ, being exposed to the new covenant, um, to the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of forgiveness. But for the ancient Israelites, there was this constant looming in the back of their mind about their sin. Because according to the Old Testament law, hopefully this is becoming a little bit clearer to you as we've been unpacking Leviticus, their sin was never truly forgiven. Their sin was never truly forgotten. It was never really enough. There was only sacrifice for unintentional sin and not for intentional high-handed sin, according to the Old Testament law. And they were always wondering when it would catch up to them. And so there's this idea in the Old Testament framework that this is always looming over your shoulder. And so the Day of Atonement, which we're looking at today, or Yom Kippur, for those of you who are familiar with that term and you get off on, in the fall if you're a school teacher, um, the Day of Atonement was a time when the sin of the previous year 
was purged. So any sin that hadn't already been atoned for, any unintentional sin, we talked multiple, multiple times in the past few weeks about this idea of if I'm unclean and I don't know it and I'm walking around the camp and then I make Pam unclean and Pam makes Kim unclean and this kind of domino effect, all of those aspects that were unknown, the Day of Atonement would purge those from the community, from the covenant community of God from the previous year, and it would essentially launch the new spiritual calendar of the year. You know, you have your academic calendar, you have your, your calendar year. This was like the beginning of the spiritual calendar for the year. So the Day of Atonement would purge that sin as the people of God hoped that the high priest's sacrifice would be received, that God would hear the high priest's prayers, his intercession, and they could go on. Now, this is how they felt, and maybe this is how some of you feel. Maybe in your own life, you have this sense of, if I said to you, let's pretend that, you know, all of a sudden a meteor fell on this restaurant and we all died, would you stand before Christ with confidence or with trepidation? In other words, if, if, you, if you die today here or on the way home and you stand before the Lord and he says, why should I allow you into my home, which I bought with my own blood, would you have confidence to say, because I'm adopted by you and I'm your son or your daughter? Or would you feel like saying, well, I hope, I hope you let me in? Because if you're in that latter camp of saying, I hope God will accept me, like I hope I've been good enough or I hope I've believe the right things, and that kind of trepidation, realize you're still having that loom behind you. But today, we want to tell you that you don't have to wonder. You can know. You can know. And so the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, verse 1, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, which we went through a few weeks ago. I think it's Leviticus 10. Right? If I'm wrong, yell out and tell me. Spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And so I, I, you need to realize with Nadab and Abihu, those were the sons of Aaron. They went into the Holy of Holies. We're going to explain that in a second. And they gave what was called unauthorized fire. And they apparently also might have been drunk. And they go into the Holy of Holies. And the fire comes out from the censer and it consumes them. And so the situ that's the situation that is precipitating this chapter. And so that happens, and then God is explaining to Moses and to Aaron um, this reality. And, and this is the reality that needs to be on the, the forefront of our minds as we go into Leviticus 16. That God is holy and mankind is not. All right? We cannot approach him of our own accord. We don't approach God of our own accord. We draw near at his command. Actually, John 6, to 45 says, No one comes to me, that's Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me drags him. It's a fishing term, right? Drags him to me. God is holy. Mankind is not. We cannot approach him of our own accord. We draw near at his command. We draw near because of his mercy. We draw near because of his permission. And this reality is lost on a generation that has no fear of God. And this, this is lost on a generation where our spiritual climate is come as you are. 
come as you are. Realize that pre-Christ, that concept is laughable to come as you are. You couldn't come, period. You could not draw near. You weren't allowed. Unless you were the high priest, you weren't allowed. For the Israelites we are, who were face-to-face -face with the all-consuming fire on a regular basis, they understood this threat of not being able to draw near of their own accord. But for us, we, we are a nobody-tells-us-what-to-do culture, a nobody-tells-us-what-to-do generation, and a nobody-tells-us-what-to-do world, especially when that is coming from some unseen deity. So we need to kind of check our own cultural baggage at the door as we try to understand these things. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time within the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. I don't want him to die. That's why I'm giving these instructions. I don't want Aaron to drop over dead. Why? For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. We told you multiple times, those linking words, like for, are your friends. They help you understand the point. He says, tell Aaron not to come anytime he wants. I don't want him to die. If he comes in, he's going to die. Why? Because my presence is hovering over the mercy seat. I was going to spend a whole sermon unpacking those two verses because I thought, what's the veil? What's the mercy seat? What's the holy of holies? And all of these things. But the author of Hebrews summarizes it nicely. And this is what he says in Hebrews 9, 1 to 7. You can make a note of that. Hebrews 9, 1 to 7. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation because it's just very clear. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in the tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain or a veil. And behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room, there was a gold incense altar, a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. And inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, this is on the mercy seat, whose wings stretched over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. So the mercy seat, place of atonement, cover of atonement, the lid to the box, that's... That's what that means. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. And so you say, well, what does that mean? We cannot explain these things in detail now. <laughs> when these things were all in place, the, the priests would regularly enter into the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Notice that word again, the sins they had committed in ignorance. I, I, I keep saying that because I want you guys to understand there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament for intentional sin. There was death. That's so lost on us. Do you know how many times I would have died this week? There's no sacrifice for unintentional sin in the Old Testament. The gospel is so much greater than the law. And when you return to the law because you think, well, I want a checklist because that's the way I'm wired, oh, you're returning to a system of death. The gospel is a beautiful picture of life. 
It's so much more glorious than the law, okay? I want to, I on that, exclamation point. Okay, so what's the deal? On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the most holy place to offer a sacrifice first for his sins, then for the sins of the people. When would he do it? He would do it once a year. If you entered any other time, it would be a death sentence, period. You could be the coolest high priest Israel had ever seen. You go in when it's not time to go in, you're dead. Why? Why is this happening? Why the Day of Atonement? Because God is holy. His people are not. Their sin needed payment, which is another way of saying it needed atonement. It needed forgiveness. The whole community needed a reset. Now, there were three items in the ark, which we saw in Hebrews, the Ten Commandments, the jar of manna, and the budded staff. And what I want you to realize is that each of these three items is a testimony to two things. One, it's a testimony to God's provision. Two, it's a testimony to the people's rebellion. You need to realize that. Everything in that ark is a testimony to the goodness of God and the failure of people. And so the items within the Ark of the Covenant are a constant reminder of their need for what? Atonement. And what's on top of the ark? The atonement cover. You see, the Ten Commandments, that was God's provision of law and a covenantal relationship. And what would happen the first time that God gave them the Ten Commandments? They violated it before Moses even got off the mountain, making a golden calf and calling it by God's divine name. Okay? The golden jar of manna represented God's provision in the wilderness during their wandering, but also a constant reminder of their complaint and rejection of it. Because whenever they gathered, it would rot. But here it was gathered for God's divine purposes, and it was eternal. The budded staff of Aaron, which was in numbers, that hasn't happened yet. But this was God's provision of leadership through the high priestly role and lineage of Aaron. And then the rebellion of Korah, who said, aren't we also God's special people? And basically they reject God's leadership because they want to be their own leaders and God says, the one whose staff blossoms overnight, that's my chosen one. And so each of the items in the, ten, in the Ark of the Covenant is a testimony to the provision of God and the rebellion of God's people. The Ark contains these items as a testimony. And then on the Ark is a lid called the mercy seat or the atonement lid or the atonement cover, the place of atonement. It's going to be translated differently depending on your translation. And that is where this, the sacrificial blood would be poured out. Why? Because above the lid hovered the very manifest presence of God, with the Ark of the Covenant being considered to be the footstool of God, and then God seated as king above that, seated above the cherubim. This is why God wants to provide the Day of Atonement. He wants to explain how and provide a way for the high priest to enter into his presence. And so this is the big thing I want you to realize, okay? It's bold on my iPad. I want you to realize this. This is it. God wants mankind to draw near. But there is a particular way, one particular way that can become a reality. Specifically, there is one way lest you die. And the Day of Atonement unpacks this process and points to that way. Who is Jesus? Just in case 
I'd fall over before the end of the sermon. But in this way, verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So how shall Aaron enter? Properly cleansed, properly dressed, with a bull offering for sin and with a ram offering for worship. And he'll do this first for himself and for his family. What's the point of this? Before the priest could offer a sacrifice on behalf of the congregation, he had to offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself. Why? Because he too was sinful. He too was a man of unclean lips who lived amongst a people of unclean lips. And see, we need to remember that even the high priest, he was just a normal sinful dude, just like you and me. That he hoped he would be forgiven. He hoped he would be heard as he went through all of this. He also would go in with two goats for sin for the people and a ram for worship. That burnt offering is worship. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself in his house. That's what I just said. Then he shall take the two goats and he shall set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he's, he's not inside the holy place. He's outside. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. We're not going to talk about Azazel this morning. But we will talk about it on our podcast. (laughs) And so you have incentive to listen to the podcast where we talk about Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, so basically, the, Aaron would, would do the sacrifice for himself and for his family. He would Then he would cast lots over these two goats. The goats are equal in, in you know, the fact that they're, they're clean and they're unblemished and that sort of thing. And one of them is going to be slaughtered and is going to have its blood poured out on the altar. And the other goat is going to be what is uh, traditionally referred to as the scapegoat, right? Not the scapegoat, the scapegoat. And it's going to have the sins of the people spoken over its head, and then it's going to be released into the wilderness to Azazel. Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself in his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall then take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. Now that's the veil that we sang about and the veil that Dave mentioned when he was praying, okay? That the veil that was torn when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus is crucified, he dies, it says the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying the fact that God had made a way into the veil, right? Into the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now you have to remember, it says in my notes, but you have to remember that's significant because if you were doing your priestly duties like Nacho Libre inside the temple, 
right? When that veil was torn from top to bottom and all of a sudden it's torn, what, did you, what would you think was going to happen as soon as you looked at that Holy of Holies? Ark of Covenant, right? Ark like Indiana Jones, like, wah, right? Your face melting. Close your eyes. Don't look at it. That's not what happened because God made a way by tearing that veil. Okay, back on track. Where was I? Verse 13, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud, this is interesting. Again, those words are your friend, that. Circle the word that. Put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side and on the front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So Aaron kills the bull and he takes the censer and he goes behind the veil. And this is when it gets real, right? This is when it gets real. Now, the rabbinical tradition says that they would put bells. I mean, the bells are on his outfit according to Levitical law, right? Bells, but they also, rabbinical tradition says they would tie a rope around the high priest in case he went over and dropped over dead. It was like, oh, I was, he was a closet drunk. Nobody knew. Pull him out. You know, that kind of idea, okay? And so he goes in behind the veil. Now, remember what just happened to his sons. His sons went behind the veil, and the fire came out, consumed them, and burned them to a crisp. And that precipitated 16.1 in light of what happened with Nadab and Abihu. God spoke to Moses. This is what you're going to do, Aaron. So you put yourself in Aaron's shoes, okay? I mean, it's not a stretch to realize that the smell and black marks from your two consumed sons are still there, Okay? And here's Aaron stepping behind the veil. And he places the incense on the fire so that the cloud of incense covers the mercy seat so that he does not die. There's a sense in which the incense acts as an intercessory buffer between the lid of atonement and the presence of God. Which is fascinating considering the book of Revelation says that our prayers, our intercessory prayers go up to God like incense. Okay? And so there's this intercessory buffer between the presence of God and the mercy seat. And why is all of this needed? It says it in verse 16. Oh, I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. He places this inner. Yeah. He sprinkles the blood <laughs> seven times. This is a lot of ground to cover, guys. It's like 27 pages of notes. I'm just kidding. He sprinkles the blood seven times on the front. He sprinkles it on the east, okay? Another thing we're going to talk about in the podcast is the significance of the east side. It's super significant. The tabernacle faces the east. The blood goes on the east. Mount of Olives, the, the, um, the, the east wind is what parts the Red Sea. We're going to touch all of that stuff in um, the podcast as well. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. So that his atonement is done. Now he's going for the people. Sprinkling it over the mercy seat, on the front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. 
because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins, so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he killed the bull, he sacrificed it for himself and his line. Then he goes and he kills the goat that is designated for sacrifice and he goes back into the, behind the veil and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. He exits, he sprinkles it on the tent of meeting. Why? What's the point of all of this? And we're told directly, we don't have to wonder, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Who is he making atonement for? See, we, we, we kind of have like misconceptions. Who is he making atonement for? The holy place. He's making atonement for the holy place. In other words, the worship center became corrupt and now it needs to be cleansed with blood so worship can continue for another year. Who is he not making atonement for right now? The people. He's simply pushing the process of worship another year forward. Another year, another year, another year, another year. Which is why Paul says that God stored up wrath so that he could pour it out on his son. Everything's just getting delayed, delayed, delayed. This is a cold reset for the entire congregation to just pour more blood on top because that word for atonement also is the word for covering, right? Just pour more blood over the top of it, right? You have mold on your walls, just put another, another layer of white primer, okay? Just put more white primer, more white primer, more blood, more blood, cover it up, cover it up. It came through the next year, more blood, more blood, more blood. It's still there. There's just blood covering it. Verse 17, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and his house and the assembly of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and he makes atonement for it. So what is God doing? Now he's cleansing the altar. He cleansed the mercy seat. He cleansed the tabernacle entrance. He's cleansing the altar. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Notice that it says very clearly that no one may be in the tent of meeting. In other words, they couldn't be in the holy place while the priest, high priest was in the most holy place like cheering them on. You got this, Aaron. You do it, man. Get it. Don't forget to sprinkle seven times. He's by himself. You know, and I, I, I tried to think of um, an area, like a single verse where this is really clear, and, but it's not. But realize that just like this, the high priest, Christ went at this all alone. All of his people abandoned him. His, those most closest to him abandoned him. Jesus went at this act of crucifixion all alone. Verse 20, and when he has made an, an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, right? Now the scapegoat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, and he shall confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, and he shall send it 
away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, and the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now the first goat of Leviticus 16, 1 to 19, is the goat that was killed. Now if you're into fancy theological terms, that is the goat that was given for propitiation which is the satisfaction of wrath, the averting of God's wrath, the satisfaction of his requirements. But this second goat is a, has to do with a, a less commonly discussed aspect of um, salvation, and this is called expiation. So propitiation and expiation, E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. And expiation is the idea of the removal and of sin and shame associated with it. And so in other words, if I beat you up publicly, I have propitiation that needs to be dealt with. But then what do you have? You have shame of being beaten up by a pastor publicly. And then you need to have your shame expiated, okay? Now, for those of us who aren't in the shame and honor culture, this might be hard for us to fathom because we have no shame over anything that we do, right? But if any of you are familiar with the shame and honor culture, the removal of shame is a huge concept, all right? People get killed because they dishonor their family. And so expiation, the removal of shame. And so after Aaron and the priests pray over the scapegoat and they send it into the wilderness, expiating the sins so that the sins are out in the wilderness where they belong, that's the idea, they're outside the camp, then they come in, they cleanse themselves, they prepare themselves. That's what happens in the next batch of verses. We're going to fast forward to verse 29 for the sake of time. And it shall be a statute to you forever. So when does it end? Never. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day you shall, or on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute when? Forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. Wearing the linen garments, he shall make atonement for the sanctuary and for the tent of meeting and for the altar and for the atonement of the priests and for the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute for how long? Forever. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded. A couple things I want you to see here. One, the atonement was made to cleanse them, to cleanse them. This happened yearly, and it had to be solemn. In other words, they had to take it seriously. They couldn't go through the motions. No work. They had to fast. They had to be introspective. They had to really process what was going on. Why? Because all of this is about cleansing the people from their sins. While the people are doing that hard work of introspection, the high priest is doing this hard work of sacrifice. And this happened yearly, forever. Never finding true victory. Never actually being forgiven, only being cleansed. 
having wrath delayed one more year, one more year, one more year, until when? Forever, or until Christ, who comes as the perfect priest, the once and done sacrifice, and the final scapegoat who died outside the camp in the wilderness expiating our sin and shame. And our sin and shame has been dealt with because it was publicly nailed to the cross for everybody to see. And so now Jesus already bore my shame. I don't need to bear it any longer. And this is what the author of Hebrews explains. I'm not going to explain this. I'm just going to read it. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was made not by human hands and is not part of this created world. This is what's happening in the unseen realm as Jesus goes through the crucifixion and resurrection. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time, securing redemption for how long? Forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Again, it's not forgiveness. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised for them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Now Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, like the temple, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf, and he did not enter to heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove by his own death, remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and then comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sin, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. See, that's what the Day of Atonement was all about. 
showing a way, but the way actually had no power. It only had power to delay, 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 delay. And then Jesus came fulfilling the day of atonement as the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect scapegoat so that once for all it could be dealt with. And the road sign which pointed to Jesus has now done its job. And so even though Leviticus says, do this forever, it doesn't need to be done anymore because Jesus did it once for all. See, once we could not approach, once we could not draw near, but now, because of Christ, we can. Once we had sin constantly looming behind us, but in Christ it is finished. Once we carried our sin and shame, but in Christ it's been publicly displayed and removed. Once we had to go through ritual after ritual after ritual, but now we no longer have to do the work of religion. What we do now, according to Hebrews, what do we have? Forever redemption, purified consciences, no penalty for sin, in her eternal inheritance, and a coming salvation. And our response is to work really hard. No. Our response is to eagerly wait for his return. So here's the point. God wants mankind to draw near to him. But there is a particular way in which this can become a reality. The day of atonement pointed to it. Jesus fulfilled it. He is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. And to approach the Father any other way, just like in the day of atonement, only results in what? death. Now we can draw near, not in fear, but in boldness with courage. And so as the author of Hebrews continues in chapter 10, therefore, let us draw near all the more as the day of Christ draws near. Let's pray. Father God, I ask and pray that we would be in awe of the amazing work you have done. And I pray that there would not be a single temptation within our beings to return to the old way of sin and death because the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from that old oppressive system. I thank you that we are under no obligation to the flesh because we've been reborn by the spirit and now we are under obligation to you and you alone. I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not surrendered to King Jesus, I pray that in their heart of hearts you would have them fall to their knees and cry out to you in surrender, that they would give themselves truly, turning from their work of, of religion, turning from their sin, and trusting in the finished, atoning work of Christ, which was accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb, and that they would receive your Holy Spirit so they can follow you as king and eagerly wait for your return. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.